In the second week of November 1955, two Sugar Bowl executives left New Orleans en route to Pittsburgh. They headed for Pitt Stadium, where they would scout the 48th edition of the rivalry between Pitt and West Virginia, known as the Backyard Brawl. Fred Digby, 62, a retired sports writer, had founded the Sugar Bowl. Monk Simons, 41, had coached three different sports at Tulane, where they played the Sugar Bowl. They were prominent men in New Orleans. Translation, given that it was the 50s and New Orleans is located in the Deep South, Digby and Simons were white. They went to Pittsburgh to invite West Virginia to play in the Sugar Bowl. The Mountaineers were ranked sixth in the nation. Pitt, ranked 17th, would be no pushover, especially because the brawl had earned its reputation as one of the most intense rivalries in the East. But eight of nine writers in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette picked West Virginia to win. What Digby and Simon saw that Saturday caused them to fall in love with the Pitt Panthers, who defeated West Virginia 26-7. One week later, at the end of the season, the Sugar Bowl officially invited the Panthers to New Orleans, where they would face Georgia Tech. What Digby and Simons did not see that Saturday in Pittsburgh was the play of Pitt senior Bobby Greer. On that particular day, Greer, a six-foot-one, 200-pound back, had injured a knee and did not play. Whether Greer played or not, to most Americans in 1955, his most defining feature as a college football player was the color of his skin. He was black. The invitation of an integrated Pitt football team to the Sugar Bowl was not welcome news in segregated New Orleans. But that invitation would make bigger headlines in Georgia, where it set off a conflict that pitted a governor against the state university, its coach, and its football team. A conflict that would end in one of the defining moments in college football's rich history, the breaking of the color line in the Deep South. Welcome to Down and Distance a podcast about the history of college football, part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. I'm your host, Ivan Mazel. Our story today, Standing at Armageddon, is about that 1956 Sugar Bowl, when the forces of civil rights, football, and a South-resistant change came crashing together. You know who works hard? Rookies. Sure, they make mistakes, but no one's got more to prove, knowing each day is another opportunity to outwork them all and earn the respect they deserve. That's why, after 130 years, Carhartt still approaches each day with the passion and work ethic of a company that's 130 years young. Same hunger, same determination, same giant chip on the shoulder. And in the same way a rookie needs to work hard to earn the respect of their peers, Everything Carhartt makes has to keep earning the respect of the hardworking people who wear it. That's why Carhartt still works like a rookie, and why Carhartt will keep outworking them all for the next 130 years, too. Visit carhartt.com forward slash CFB to learn more and shop this season's hardest working gear. I grew up in Alabama in the 1960s and 70s. The civil rights struggle served as the backdrop of my childhood. So did college football. 
This was Alabama at a time when Bear Bryant and the Crimson Tide were all that stood between my state and complete national humiliation. The rest of the country might have looked upon us with disdain, but by God, we would be taken seriously on the football field. College football had never been immune to the civil rights struggle. Far from it. The sport reflected the lives of the people who played it and coached it, who watched from the stands and listened on the radio. The fall of 1955 hummed with the tension of the burgeoning civil rights movement. The unstoppable force of integration, backed by the federal government and the Brown v. Board decision a year earlier, had begun to collide with the immovable object of Southern segregation. In August, shortly before the start of the football season, 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched in Mississippi. In December, as the season ended, a policeman in Montgomery, Alabama, arrested a seamstress named Rosa Parks for refusing to give up her bus seat to a white person. Her arrest gave rise to the Montgomery bus boycott, led by a young preacher named Martin Luther King Jr. By the end of the season, the question of civil rights would seize the sport of college football, too. I should point out here that college football was not lily white in 1955. The Big Ten Conference had 63 African-American players. Four black players made one of the prominent All-American teams. Five black players started in that season's Rose Bowl. But Southern college football, like the South and every other walk of life, told a different story. The Sugar Bowl had been segregated since its inception in 1935, just like its home city of New Orleans, just like the rest of the South. Forget playing in the game. African-American fans couldn't even sit with white fans in Tulane Stadium, the original home of the Sugar Bowl. Admission tickets for white-only sections had been printed with a warning. This ticket is issued for a person of the Caucasian race, and if used by any other, is in violation of state law. But even as the South clenched its fist and vowed to defy federal efforts to integrate society, the Sugar Bowl officials invited the integrated Pittsburgh Panthers to participate. And with that decision, the Sugar Bowl morphed from football game to political football and settled somewhere in between, placing senior Bobby Greer in the national spotlight. Based on his career at Pitt, the last person on whom to train that spotlight would be Greer. He was a quiet kid from Ohio who had spent four seasons trying to get on the field with mixed results. Greer pulled double duty as a fullback defensive back. It's not as strange as it sounds. In those days, football was a one-platoon game. Everyone played offense and defense. The saying was, a player had to block and tackle, not block or tackle. In 1953, Greer's sophomore year, Pitt coach Red Dawson inserted him into the lineup in the second half of a rout against North Carolina State. Greer rushed for 198 yards and a touchdown on only 13 carries. But coach Dawson remained hesitant to play Greer. Dawson considered Greer a defensive liability. For example, early in his junior season, Greer, playing in the secondary, bit on a fake and allowed USC to score a touchdown that broke the game open. Myron Cope, a Pittsburgh media legend, would later report that Dawson walked up to Greer and said, I hope you're satisfied. As a senior, 
Greer got a fresh start under Pitt's new head coach, John Michael Lawson, but again got benched after the season opener. Greer spent the rest of the season sharing time at fullback and defensive back with Tom Jenkins. Greer contributed, perhaps not as much as he wanted, but he contributed to what became a storybook season. Though a knee injury prevented Greer from playing against West Virginia, the Sugar Bowl scouts who watched the backyard brawl did know he was on the team. Maybe they indulged in wishful thinking. Maybe Greer's absence convinced them that Pitt was integrated in name only. In the end, the Sugar Bowl succumbed to the allure of the Panthers. They had won the Lambert Trophy, awarded to the best team in the East. After the upset of West Virginia and a season-ending defeat of Penn State, Pitt rose to number 11 in the AP poll. In the early 1950s, some bowls had begun to sign deals with conferences in order to assure that the bowl would have at least one league champion. Pitt didn't play in a conference, and Pitt was the highest-ranked team available. So the Sugar Bowl extended an invitation to the Pitt Panthers on November 22nd. Fred Digby, the general manager of the bowl, said that the invitation came without conditions. By the way, Greer's appearance in the Sugar Bowl wouldn't be the first time a black college athlete competed in New Orleans. College basketball had been integrated there without incident. In fact, in the days leading up to the Sugar Bowl, two different integrated teams played in New Orleans. In one game, Loyola University, a Jesuit institution in New Orleans, played host to national champion San Francisco and its three black starters, two of whom, Bill Russell and Casey Jones, would end up in the Basketball Hall of Fame. That reassurance placated the Pitt administration. Bobby Greer would be allowed to fully participate. Greer would dress in the locker room after the game. He would shower in the showers. Trust me, that might have been a thing in New Orleans in the mid-1950s and Greer would be invited to the post-game party held for the two teams at the St. Charles Hotel, then a segregated New Orleans institution. The manager of the St. Charles told the New York Times, If he shows up, I won't block his way, but you know he would never come. Traditionally, the St. Charles Hotel does not allow Negroes at dinners or dances. Not exactly rolling out the welcome mat. There were limits to the number of barriers that the Sugar Bowl could take down. Immediately after Pitt received the invitation, Coach Michael Lawson told local reporters that the Panthers would stay at the Roosevelt Hotel, like the St. Charles, one of the city's finest. But after Michael Lawson made a preliminary trip to New Orleans, he announced that the team would stay in the dorms at Tulane. The Roosevelt wasn't about to admit a black guest. Building a winning team is all about finding the right people for the job. That's why college coaches all over the country spend so much time recruiting players they need on the field. And when it comes to hiring for your business, there's no better tool than LinkedIn. LinkedIn provides a vast array of recommended job candidates all in one organized place. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability, 
LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash CFB. That's linkedin.com slash CFB to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. The response in the South to the Sugar Bowl's invitation to Pitt remained muted, at least until the game's officials invited another team to play. You see, the Sugar Bowl traditionally invited at least one Southern team. And in the mid-1950s, no Southern team won more consistently than Georgia Tech. The 1955 Yellow Jackets reigned as a national power and a perennial SEC contender. Coach Bobby Dodd built teams known for defense, for making breaks where none seemed apparent, and for winning games they should not have won. SEC fans called it Dodd Luck. The Yellow Jackets closed out the year by dominating arch-rival Georgia 21-3. Dodd called it the finest game a Tech team has ever played. At number seven, Georgia Tech finished the regular season as the highest-ranked team in the conference. So the Sugar Bowl invited Dodd's Ramblin' Wreck to play Pittsburgh. Georgia Tech's players, like every team in the SEC, were all white. Dodd polled his players, asking them if they wanted to play an integrated team. To a man, the Yellow Jackets voted to play. The team had Dodd's back, but Dodd wanted to cover his backside. Dodd reached out to Georgia Governor Marvin Griffin to see if he had any objections. Griffin, a small-town newspaper man and ardent segregationist, described the Brown v. Board decision as a bitter pill of tyranny. Griffin had run his campaign for governor in 1954 on a promise to keep the state's schools segregated come hell or high water. There's no provision in the federal constitution dealing with education or with schools. Not one word, not one syllable. Education is one of the subjects reserved to the state. Now Griffin had a soft spot for college football, and for Tech in particular, where his son was a sophomore. In Dodd's autobiography, he later said that Governor Griffin told him, I'll back you, but not publicly. Griffin would have been happy to keep his fingerprints off the whole issue, but the governor wouldn't have that luxury. Within days, Coach Dodd received a telegram from the State's Rights Council of Georgia urging him not to play in the Sugar Bowl. Southern journalist Hotting Carter referred to a similar council in Mississippi as the Uptown Klan. These councils served as the businessmen's way of maintaining segregation with the power of their wallets and their sway over politicians. The council's opposition boxed Governor Griffin into a corner. Griffin could hardly ignore the council. He had co-founded it. Once the council asked Georgia Tech not to play, Griffin knew he had to take a public stand. He did just that on Friday, December 2nd, the same day that the governor's office called the athletic department and asked Georgia Tech for Sugar Bowl tickets. Which, of course, you can't make up. It was also the day after Rosa Parks had been arrested in Montgomery for failing to move to the back of a city bus. Griffin stood with his voters and financial backers. 
In a telegram, he publicly asked the Board of Regents to forbid Georgia Tech from playing integrated teams. The South stands at Armageddon. The battle is joined. We cannot make the slightest concession to the enemy in this dark and lamentable hour of struggle. There is no more difference in compromising integrity of race on the playing field than in doing so in the classrooms. One break in the dike and the relentless seas will rush in and destroy us. We are in this fight 100%, not 98%, not 75%, not 64%, but a full 100%. An immediate called meeting of the State Board of Regents to act on my request is vitally necessary at this time. Northern newspapers widely condemned Griffin for his remarks. A Pittsburgh columnist wrote that Griffin's speech was the most damaging blow to American idealism and freedom in several years. Walter Reuther, one of the most powerful labor leaders of the day, chimed in, calling the governor's attitude un-American. Griffin expected that kind of criticism from people outside the southern footprint. That was fine. They couldn't vote for him anyway. He made his statement on behalf of the people who put him in office, the rural voters of Georgia. But the governor had no inkling of the response he would get from the Georgia Tech community. He found out soon enough. A member of the state's Board of Regents called his statement asinine. Blake Van Leer, Georgia Tech's president, offered an ultimatum. Either we're going to the Sugar Bowl, he said, or you can find yourself another damn president. And then Tech's students lashed out in fury. They wanted to see their yellow jackets in the Sugar Bowl. You would think a student body of 6,500, every one of them white and 82% of them Southern, would be opposed to integration. And who knows? Maybe they were. But civil rights were one thing. Let's not be messing with the football team. Some 2,000 students, nearly one-third of the student body, gathered to protest the governor's declaration. They held up signs that said, Griffin sits on his brains, and we play anybody. They burned their governor in effigy, not once, not twice, but three times. As the students marched from the university to the Capitol building, their protests morphed into a riot. They uprooted parking meters and broke windows. Think about that. Over the next decade, one of the most effective tactics of the civil rights movement would be nonviolence. Yet at the dawn of the movement, here was a bunch of white college students acting out their rage via property crime in order to protect an integrated college football game. The mob made their way to the street outside the governor's mansion, where they stayed until 3.30 in the morning. Finally, a state senator who had played football at Tech made an appearance and promised them the game would go on. The students went home. Back in Pittsburgh, the Panthers stood by their man. The acting chancellor of the university put it simply, no Greer, no game. And the Panthers took a vote of their own the team decided they wouldn't go to the Sugar Bowl without Greer. He would later say it was one of the proudest moments of his life. He always had been popular among his teammates, many of whom had grown up in integrated neighborhoods in the steel towns of western Pennsylvania. 
Coach Michael Lawson didn't want his players to comment on the controversy, but he made an exception for Greer. The senior told reporters, I'm glad we're going to get a chance to play the finest team in the South, Georgia Tech. And that was it. So there's no way that the uproar took the Sugar Bowl officials by surprise. Bringing a black football player to the segregated South could never fly too low for Southern radar. So you wonder, what were they thinking? Were they being socially progressive? Or was it something else? We have some kind of idea. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette quoted two Sugar Bowl committeemen who had thoughts on integrating the game. One expressed optimism that Greer's appearance would be the opening wedge to the end of segregation. But another man said he didn't like that Greer would play, but we had to take him to get Pitt. Throughout the history of college football, you know that every great moment has come from teams combining tireless preparation and hard work. Same for your business. From hotel chains to airlines, universities to healthcare facilities, retailers to local auto mechanics, more than one million businesses trust Centos to help them open their doors with confidence and get ready for the workday. College football has always been rooted in tradition. For example, the uniforms, the maize and blue, the crimson and cream. Centos has apparel programs to help your employees convey the right image leading your business to the promised land. Great teams keep their goals top of mind. They don't waste time with distractions. It's your business. Focus on what you do best and leave the rest to CentOS. Get CentOS and get ready for the workday. Learn how CentOS can help get your business ready at CentOS.com. Three days after Griffin made his speech, about a month before the game, the Georgia Board of Regents voted 13-1 to to allow Tech to play in the Sugar Bowl. It seems like a remarkably forward-thinking position for the board of an all-white Southern public institution. It wasn't. The Regents couldn't go along with Griffin's request. The contract with the Sugar Bowl had been signed, and there was no backing out. Not to mention that they wanted the Yellow Jackets to play in the Sugar Bowl. That was the substance of the matter. Appearances were another thing. To appease the segregationists, the Regents created a new policy that would take effect the next year for both Georgia and Georgia Tech. Moving forward, the two schools would not be allowed to play integrated teams before integrated crowds in segregated states. It sounds odd, doesn't it? The Regents made a rule for the future that undercut their stance in the present. But it turned out to be all theater. Passing the rule returned the Regents to the segregated side of the street. It softened the blow, too, and provided cover for Governor Griffin. And as time passed, it became clear that they had no intention of enforcing the rule. Four years later, Georgia agreed to play integrated Missouri in the Orange Bowl, and no one made a peep about the Tigers' two black running backs. As soon as the 1956 Sugar Bowl receded in the rearview mirror, everyone seemed to forget about the policy. 
Governor Griffin was happy to return the face-saving gesture, getting word to the regents and to the tech powers that he would not stand in the way of the football team, which, if you think about it, was the same stance he had all along. In fact, amid all the controversy he had stirred up, the governor quietly posted bond for six tech students who had been arrested in the riot, and he asked the Atlanta police not to press charges. Griffin felt compelled by political considerations to rail against an integrated team. Yet, he suffered a public defeat anyway. Though he could take solace in knowing he had played to his rural racist voter base, his national reputation took a hit from which it would never recover. The Pitt Panthers arrived in New Orleans on a late December afternoon and immediately went to the practice field. There, Greer's fortunes would change, and the national spotlight would get a little hotter. Starting fullback Tom Jenkins injured his knee while pushing a blocking sled, and Greer suddenly found himself in the team's starting lineup, somewhere he hadn't been very often. On Monday afternoon, January 2nd, Pittsburgh and Georgia Tech at long last, met on the field. It's near game time. Time to start the 22nd Sugar Bowl football classic. The Georgia Tech squad races onto the field to take over the east side. Tulane Stadium in no way resembled a civil rights battlefield. The New York Times reported that the police had prepared special squads that would isolate any part of the 81,000-seat stadium in which a racial incident might occur. But it also noted that the feeling in New Orleans leading up to the game was that the racial controversy was strictly a Georgia affair. The Times also reported that several hundred African Americans sat among the 10,000-seat section of Pittsburgh Rooters, and that several white fans sat in the end zone sections reserved for black fans. In each case, there were no racial incidents. On Georgia Tech's second possession of the game, quarterback Wade Mitchell threw a pass from Pitt's 32-yard line to teammate Don Ellis, headed for the right corner of the end zone. Greer, playing defense, had position between Ellis and the goal line. Rushed by Walton and finally throws. Greer pursues Ellis into the end zone. Ellis leaps for the ball, but it's out of his reach. They got tangled up, and Greer ended up on the ground. The ball sailed over both their heads. The back judge called pass interference on Greer. However, there's a flag on the play, and interference is called. Tech gets the ball on the one-yard line. First and goal for Tech. Two plays later, Tech scored and took a 7-0 lead. The Georgia Tech quarterback keeps the ball, and he sneaks to the middle for a touchdown. When time expired three quarters later, the score was still 7-0. Greer led all rushers with 51 yards, but he sobbed in the locker room after the game. It should have been called the other way, he said, referring to the pass interference. Ellis pushed me from behind. That's why I fell forward. Another reporter quoted Greer saying, I was in front of him. How could I have pushed him? Ellis was quoted as saying that Greer had interfered with him. So what really happened? The surviving footage of the play isn't much help. The cameraman followed the ball in the air, 
by the time the camera reached the goal line, the jostling between Greer and Ellis had already happened. You see Ellis running, the ball well over his head, and Greer flat on the ground. A photo that ran in newspapers across the country the next day shows the same thing. Ellis upright in the end zone, Greer prone at his feet. That would indicate that whatever contact happened, Ellis got the best of it. The writers in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette all treated the call as a legitimate penalty. So did Furman Bisher, the most prominent sports voice in the Atlanta Constitution. But in an authorized history of the Sugar Bowl, the sports editor of the New Orleans Times-Picayune, Bill Keefe, wrote, I followed the ball in flight with my binoculars and was just in time to see Greer seemingly push himself off Ellis and fall. To me, Keefe typed that with full-on sarcasm. Of course Greer wouldn't push himself off Ellis. If he were propelled, Ellis would do the propelling. But here's the important point. No one, then or afterward, ever intimated that the call had been racially motivated. In those days, each team selected three officials. The back judge, Frank Lowry, had been selected by Pitt. As Greer defended himself after the game, he made clear to point out that no Tech player had said or done anything regarding race. He said, They were good sportsmen, perhaps the best I've played against all season. They played hard but clean. It was a good game, but believe me, I didn't push that man. After the game, Greer and his teammates took a bus to the Whites-only St. Charles Hotel for the post-game dinner honoring both teams. Remember, the St. Charles is the place where the manager said of Greer, you know he would never come. When Greer got off the bus, a group of Tech players awaited him. Five Yellow Jackets approached Greer, enveloped him, and asked him to sit with them at dinner. Amid all the tension, it's hard to imagine a lovelier gesture. Greer said he assumed they were all Yankees, but they weren't. The Georgia Tech roster listed 48 players that season. All 48 came from southern states. That wasn't the only pleasant surprise. Of all the players at dinner, Greer received the largest standing ovation. It was as if everyone, Panther and Yellow Jacket alike, was glad he had made it. Greer later said that the African-American waiters greeted him with a big smile, congratulated him, and told him, thank you. Greer skipped the ensuing party at the St. Charles, his fraternity chapter at Dillard, the local black college, had offered to throw a party in his honor, and he chose to go there rather than be the only black man at a dance in segregated New Orleans. It would be touching to say that Greer's appearance in the Sugar Bowl marked a watershed for civil rights and Southern sports, but that's not what happened. Later that year, as if to reassert the state's southern identity in the wake of the Sugar Bowl, the Louisiana State Legislature passed Act 579, the Anti-Mixing Statute of 1956, which prohibited racially integrated events. As a result, the Sugar Bowl didn't host a northern team, that is, integrated, 
for eight seasons. In 1964, the U.S. Supreme Court let stand a lower court ruling that declared the law unconstitutional. One year after that ruling, the Sugar Bowl finally welcomed another integrated team. Syracuse, featuring two outstanding African-American running backs, Jim Nance and Floyd Little, came south to play LSU. As for Greer, he served in the Air Force and returned to Pittsburgh, where he worked at U.S. Steel and as an administrator of higher education. At 86, he is now an icon in the history of Pitt sports. When Pitt and Georgia Tech played in the 1956 Sugar Bowl, the Panthers were independent and the Yellow Jackets were in the SEC. Six decades later, they are annual rivals, members of the ACC. In the fall of 2018, when Georgia Tech played at Pitt, the Panthers named Greer an honorary coach. A few weeks later, the Sugar Bowl included Greer in its second Hall of Fame class, along such luminaries as Steve Spurrier, Vince Dooley, Jerome Bettis, and Todd Blackledge. When the class was introduced to the fans at the Mercedes-Benz Superdome, Greer, who uses a wheelchair, insisted on walking with the help of a cane from the sideline onto the field. That short walk concluded a journey that had begun 63 years earlier in a cauldron of tension and hate, a time when black athletes and white athletes competing together and the white fans and black fans sitting together to watch them could be prevented by law. It's worth remembering that is merely the span of one man's lifetime. It wasn't that long ago. Before we conclude, I want to say a word about my longtime friend and colleague, the late Bino Cook, a son of Pittsburgh, a man who spent nearly his entire life immersed in college football as an administrator, TV executive, and commentator. Bino became Pitt SID in 1956, the season after this Sugar Bowl we just discussed. He loved the Panthers, and the Panthers loved him back. The school named the practice field for him. For several years, Bino and I appeared together on an ESPN podcast. His love of the game was matched only by the depth of his knowledge. He knew everyone in the game, and he knew everything about the game. Bino has inspired me throughout the preparation of these down and distance podcasts. He died seven years ago, and I can't believe he didn't stick around for the 150th birthday of the sport he loved. At the end of every show, Bino and I would discuss how we fooled him again. We had gotten paid for talking about college football. Bino's gone now, but we still have his voice. So, with that said, for Down and Distance, I'm Ivan Maisel. Well, we fooled him again. Down and Distance is part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Down and Distance is produced by Nina Ernest, with help from Scott Siebers, Ryan Nantel, and Jody Avergan. Our engineer is Josh Macri. 
Special thanks to Alexandria Cooper and Gabe Bassane. The executive producer of ESPN College Football 150 is John Dahl. I'm Ivan Mazel. On our next episode, I'll tell you how the USC Trojans came within 19 seconds of making college football history and how they slowly receded from the top. The fall of Troy on the next Down and Distance.